If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrumpel. Now today, I think it's fair to say that we have the historian's historian on, because uh, (laughs) never has there been somebody that I've had so many people say, he's brilliant, he's so brilliant, he's my inspiration. He used to, I mean, he bought me a pony for Christmas and they loved (laughs) our next guest. He's like, he's very much, he's very much loved. Uh, Paul Cartledge, A.G. Leventis, Professor of Greek Culture at Cambridge, author of Thermopylae, The Battle That Changed the World and The Spartans, an epic history and the absolutely perfect guest to talk about the Battle of Thermopylae. One of the most famous battles of history fought between the Persians and the Greeks following the Persian invasion of Greece. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much. Uh, No pressure then, eh? Paul, we've come at this very much from the Persian angle. Most of us who have studied Thermopylae have done so from the point of view of the classics, from Herodotus. And in some versions of that, Thermopylae and this whole conflict is looked at as a great sort of monumental moment for Europe, the moment that Europe defied the tyranny of the East and so on. And yet, when we look in the Persian sources, there's barely a mention of this battle. And there are those who question whether Herodotus is really the the father of history that we're all taught he is and, and, and a reliable source of any sort. Do you think that the story that we're going to have today really is as central a story in all our consciousness, or is it uh, the making of Herodotus and, uh, and the bigging up by interested parties of, of what was actually a fairly small skirmish? Ah, well, now there are two points, two different points there, whether or not it was um, really small or whether it happened at all, I think, is the other. Oh, yeah, that sounds very promising for a bit of revisionism. <laughs> no, this is me. You see, as a historian, you ask yourself, um, what is the evidence? You have to start always from the evidence. And for the ancients, we have two kinds, written, which has survived, because there's tons of oral tradition. But if it's not written down ever, that's it. It just vanishes into the air. And the other kind, I actually did a doctorate in archaeology, so I'm particularly interested in what we now call material culture evidence. And so if you have any doubt about the Battle of Thermopylae ever having happened, because, as you rightly say, Persians uh, don't mention it. Uh, they didn't keep records. They, w- they weren't historians. They weren't interested in history uh, in the way that this is, a, I think, a big Western-Eastern cultural divide. But if you then look at the site where everything is said to have happened. Geology, topography radically changed. That's not a problem. We know about crustal movements, earthquakes, what have you, rising sea level. But if you go to where the central 
final conflict happened and you sink in a spade as Marinatos did, a man called Marinatos, and he found enough Persian evidence, this is the point, not just Greek stuff, but arrowheads which the Persians had fired, plus other stuff, to make it absolutely clear this is the site of Thermopylae. But, but, that's merely, a, as it were, a pinprick in amongst the immense amount of detail that you've already, I know, started, and we're going to try to cover a little bit more today. When we talked about Herodotus, Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones uh, was scathing about um, Herodotus, saying you can't believe him, he made a lot of stuff up. He really questioned whether Herodotus was reliable. Well, he's not the first. <laughs> and um, famously, Plutarch, uh, who came from a place in central Greece and not far from the, where Thebes is. I wrote a book on Thebes recently. And uh, Plutarch was exceptionally upset with uh, Herodotus for representing his near ancestors, as it were, as traitors and uh, generally a very, very bad thing. And the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is that if you believe Herodotus, and there is in some cases no other source, and in all cases no other near contemporary source, then we have to take it that the Thebans did play a very bad role. You know more about this than most people on the planet. Do you accept that it was, you know, the invasion, the motivation for it was a retaliation against Athens for their support of insurgents in the Ionian revolt? We talked about this a little bit in the last episode. Well, it's twofold, because if you go back a little bit before that, in other words, before Greeks, mainland Greeks, started interfering as the Persians saw it in the Persian Empire, they claimed all of Asia as theirs, up to, in other words, the Hellespont and the Aegean. If, on the other hand, you look at it from uh, the Greek side, they see this massive power expanding within a generation. It's the greatest empire yet, in other words, before China. And it encompasses the whole of Asia up to Afghanistan in the northeast, Pakistan in the southeast, and then all the way over to the west. Now, my point is this, that Darius, Darius the first, the great, he had already tried to expand a long way to his northwest into what is now Georgia, that sort of Caucasus area, around the Caspian Sea, and he failed there. And Cyrus was even killed by them before that. Yeah, and I think it's a given of empire that what you worry about is the next people along on your frontier. And if they start irritating, same of the Roman Empire, why did Julius Caesar invade Britain? I'm not going to go into this, but he did so because the bloody Britons had been in, interfering in Gaul. So when you have uh, an imperial, if you like, dynamic, and Herodotus, to his great credit, among many, many credits, uh, picked up on this, the Persian Empire is inherently expansionist, and I don't know if your program's got as far as pointing out that already, before Thermopylae, the Persian Empire extended into Europe, because Macedonia was a vassal people state of the Persian Empire, well before Marathon, actually. Yes, we've done Marathon and exposed the Macedonians as mere Persian uh, satraps. Can I just move us to, to Xerxes now? Because he, he oversees the construction of these two pontoon bridges across the Hellespont. And we're talking about 
480 BC. So these are what exactly? And when we're talking about pontoon bridges that link Europe and Asia, what do they look like and and how are they constructed? Well, just as you say, they're boats um, side on, lashed together with an earthen uh, walkway in the middle with planks and built by Egyptian engineers. Remember, the Persian Empire encompasses not only Asia, but also part of Africa. I should say, I'm I'm taking this from Delhi, where there was a bridge of boats right up to the last century. I was just going to make the point that in not only in India, but Pakistan today and Afghanistan today, big rivers, the Jhelum and so on, to get across them, you don't build a stone bridge or an iron bridge. You build a bridge of boats. And uh, normally, because... What did for Xerxes bridges, I'm anticipating here, but um, there are currents in the Hellespont, and so there are nasty winds, and um, the the stability of the moorings became unstuck, and so that they eventually were destroyed quite easily, actually. But anyway, they served the purpose, which was to get something like 200,000 men and beasts across the Hellespont. The thing that struck me from, from reading you is that um, they, they did some modifications to this pontoon bridge, which were just genius because, you know, horses get nervous in water. It's not that, you know, they're not seahorses after all. Exactly. They raised up the sides. That's the point. With curtains. Are these linen curtains so they couldn't look to the left and right of them? Yeah. And so linen, that means possibly, probably Egypt, actually. So they had fantastic resources at their disposal, the Persian Empire. There were something over 20 different provinces, very, very different in language, culture, religion, material culture. And so merely to bring that together in one fighting force was something of a feat. I've stood on those steps at Persepolis and they have these images of all the different peoples of the empire bringing gifts. Yeah, the Apadana it's called, that's the audience hall and the staircase up shows you a significant selection from the various peoples bringing tribute, their relevant tribute. And, um, for example, gold dust from India. So, I mean, this is Xerxes' great triumph, not just to erect this this pontoon bridge where the horses can get across and, and thousands of men can get across without getting nervous. But it does shake also, it follows up his father's promise and failed ambition. But what do the Athenians say? Can they believe that this is actually happening? Does it immediately strike? So, I mean, what's their response to this? Well, they are the prime target because it was they who responded to the rising in Asia of their, they thought, relatives, people in Miletus and so on, along the western coast of Asia Minor, today Turkey. So that's the casus belli of um, First of all, the invasion in 490, which resulted in Marathon, and then failed, and therefore there's unfinished business. But I don't know how far you've gone into Xerxes personally yet. He wasn't the crown prince. Well, remind us. Give us a little sketch of of Xerxes. Right. Well, the earliest two sources for him are the uh, poet-playwright Aeschylus, writing his play Persians, which is performed in 472. And that is our earliest source for the Persian Wars of a literary kind, though it's focused not on Thermopylae, but on Salamis. But the point is that he agrees with uh, Herodotus, or rather Herodotus agrees with him, that Xerxes, whom one wouldn't have predicted would have become king, he wasn't the crown prince, he was the third son, he becomes king, he's got a lot to prove, and in a way he overdoes it, he is excessive. This is the keynote of both Aeschylus and Herodotus' picture of Xerxes. 
Right. And so, I mean, he, he shouldn't surprise us that he comes across this this great pontoon bridge with his enormous army, but he's never going to fight. It's not like the sort of Achilles model or the, you know, um, Alexander the Great model that they, they are there sword in hand or bow and arrow in hand and they're going to fight. Xerxes doesn't fight. Well, you say that, but he might have done because you possibly have seen the very famous um, mosaic from Pompeii. It's of an Alexander the Great battle. People differ as to which battle it is. But clearly in the battle, Darius III, this is a much later Persian emperor, is on horseback in his chariot. With his wonderful Persian hat or Phrygian hat. In, uh... All of that. And the fact is that he's in the midst of the fray. Now, Xerxes is not recorded as having entered any fray <laughs> whatsoever. He, as it were, sits it out. And famously, Battle of Salamis, which is going to come after Thermopylae, he finds himself a nice high vantage point where he has his throne set up so that he can look down on the battle <laughs> at a good distance from it, but close enough to be able to see. That was presumably unusual in both camps, in that you do hear about Cyrus going into battle. You do hear about Darius going into battle. Oh, yes. This was not like the 19th century when kings stayed at home. So Xerxes was unusual in hanging out. Well, he was there, yes, but but on a throne. I mean, watching, like yeah. <laughs> watching from, well, I mean, you know, not impossible that he's within Arrow's reach, I suppose. But look, Herodotus also says that he has 1,700,000 infantry, hundreds of thousands of cavalry, all types of other forces drawn from all over the Persian Empire. Yeah. What do you think to that? I mean, is that another Herodotus, uh, let's amp the whole thing up? Kind of thing. There is an amplification. Herodotus starts in his proemium. You know, why should one record anything? Well, one should record the great and wondrous things that are done. And he says, not just by Greeks, he's not going to be a nationalistic historian. He's going to be even handed by Greeks and barbarians, which is the Greek term for non Greeks. So he does amplify, and the Greeks are very, very bad at numbers. The same word with a different accent in ancient Greek meant both countless, in other words, so big you can't count it, and 10,000. So, <laughs> and, and, yes, yes. So, so, any number above 10,000 is wow. for them what you and I used to be uh, a million. Now, of course, we talk in trillions, don't we? Wow. Right. Tell us about the crack troops. Tell us about these the immortals. Do we believe in them? Well, we don't believe in the word immortal, which is, of course, Greek. And the Greeks built on that a, a mythology that um, you've got these 10,000 guys. And when one is killed, there is, as it were, someone on the substitute's bench who immediately is called up by the manager. But the crack troops in a pitched battle for the um, Asiatics was always cavalry. So um, as um, Macedonia in response under Alexander the Great, it's a cavalry that actually decides battles in um, huge set piece. So the um, Median, that's the North Iranian uh, horses and the Persians, their crack troops were actually cavalry, but you couldn't deploy them in Greek conditions in the same way. There isn't the terrain, there isn't the fodder, etc., etc. And so uh, they had to rely on the infantry being the decisive fighting force and the navy being in association with the uh, infantry on land. Well, I'm going to throw one of the um, <laughs> hotly disputed uh, sources, Gerard Butler's 
300 on the table. Now, yes, I'm playing that card. That is me doing that right now. But in in that movie, which is just bad, bad, bad in so many ways, but they do portray this um, the immortals or the or, or the crack infantry or the 10,000, what you know, different different names for these these men covered head to toe in armor and um and under their masks, they wear these very sort of ornate and terrifying masks, but underneath they're all a bit warty and ugly and messed up. Um, I mean, this whole thing of the masks and the head to toe, I mean, what would they have looked like, the Immortals? Because they do make a big thing of this. Well, I think the aesthetic of uh, 300 is Darth Vader. It's Star Wars mm. rather than uh, 5th century BC, <laughs> Greece and Persia. And uh, the warty stuff, of course, operates on both sides. There are very warty Greeks as well as um, <laughs> right. Persian. But that, the point of all that is um, to to other, to make the Persians seem not even um, unfortunate humans, but really unhuman or inhuman. They are kind of animalian. It's a really unpleasant, I think, uh, sort of othering. It wasn't popular in Persia, that movie, it's fair to say, or in the Persian diaspora. It's also just a very bad film. Uh, okay, <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the Navy. We've talked a bit about the army and, and the infantry and the men who are on foot and horse and chariot. What about provision on sea? What do they have? Right. Well, this enables me to bring in a point that I've wanted to make. We um, talk about it being the Greeks against the Persian, understood the Persian Empire. Actually, there were 700 or so separate Greek political entities, cities or peoples in mainland Greece and the Aegean. Of those, 32 or 33 actually banded together to resist the Persian invasion. So let's um, be absolutely clear, a few Greeks resisted vast numbers of Persians and people on the Persian Empire side. The navy is a particularly good illustration of this because a significant portion of it was Greek. Remember, the Persian Empire extends all the way to the Aegean. So there are lots and lots of naval ports along the Aegean from in the south, what's today Lebanon, all the way up through Turkey and so on. Well, there are lots of Greeks who live on Cyprus. They live in what's now Turkey. They were commandeered. And uh, one thing that the <laughs> wretched 300 franchise got right was that a very significant commander, sub-commander, on the Persian side was a Greek. And she was not only a Greek, she was a woman uh, called Artemisia. And she came from the very city Herodotus came from, which is modern Bodrum, which is ancient Halicarnassus. So Herodotus calls her, he uses a word which means virility, masculinity, bravery, because she was so unusual as a Greek woman for being so terrific in war. Plus, she was smart, and she gave Xerxes now, this is where one wonders where the fiction comes in, advice, which, of course, Xerxes didn't take. So um, it's a wonderful story on the Persian side. The navy has a significant Greek element, but its principal force is what we call Phoenicians. The Greeks called them Phoenicians. We from Tyre? Yes, from Tyre and Sidon and from Byblos. We don't know what they call themselves. Phoenicians means red men, um, simply because I think they had date palms and phoenix means date palm in Greek and the juice of dates is red and blah, blah. So they're, for the Greeks, the Phoenicians are the red men. Who dribble when they're eating dates. Is that the, is that the idea? They dribbled when they're eating, obviously. Yes, they're the dribblers. 
wrong kind of dates, I expect. <laughs> Never do that. They and the Egyptians, to be serious, had developed a form of warship which the Greeks called a three-banker, trireme. It's also, the Greek is actually trieres, and the trireme is from the uh, Latin, three rowing, three banks of rowers. But at any rate, these were a kind of guided missile, 200 people altogether, 170 rowers, very light, very quick, very fast, with a ram, a bronze ram at the front. So the key thing was to be able to maneuver your ship such that it would ram into the um, side of uh, the enemy that you're trying to attack. You don't want to go beak to beak uh, or beak to stern. You want to sink it amidships so that it takes on water and sinks, and you kill as many of the enemy by boarding them as you can. So anyway, they were much more skilled than the Greeks, any Greeks, until the 5th century BC. And so it's the Persian threat that makes the Athenians suddenly realize they've got to up their game. And they had about three years, about three years warning to build a fleet up to 200 triremes and to get good at it by practicing, because it's damn difficult as very recently, there's been a reconstructed trireme which sits in dry dock in Phaleron today. Who would have been the, the, the rowers? Would they have been free men or would they have been slaves? Well, in the Persian Empire, we, you know, there's a big issue with this word bandaka, which in Persian, uh, Iranian, means something like unfree person. But actually, all um, subjects of the great king were um, in some way bandaka. They were uh, servile because it was was an autocratic uh, hereditary monarchy. And that stereotype holds up a measure of truth, does it, that you, there is more autocracy on, on the Persian side? Well, it, it would be surprising if it wasn't, Willie, because if you look at human history, very, very sadly, the number of Republican states, let alone egalitarian democratic Republican states that there have ever been, you can count them on the fingers of two hands over, what, a million years? Uh, since we know anything about politics, only maybe two, three thousand years. But almost always, they are hereditary, dynastic autocracies. Got it. Okay. Now, just bringing us back to, to the battle itself, uh, or, or the run-up to the battle. So, you've got this enormous Persian force dividing into three columns, marching roughly 10 miles a day, so making really good progress through Greece. And Xerxes has decided that what he needs is he needs ultimate submission from the Greeks. He needs to, you know, some of his generals are telling him many of the Greeks will come on side. As you've said, it's only some Greeks who are standing up to him. But, but he's talking about total war here. Tell us about Sparta and Sparta's role in this and where does it stand and why is it so very important? Yeah, Sparta is complicated in this as in absolutely every other respect. It had not made it to Marathon to help the Athenians. Therefore, the um, Persians didn't have a casus belli specifically against the Spartans. So the question is why when the Persians came back in 480, did the Spartans not only agree to join the Athenians, but actually take the lead and form the alliance in 481? Two reasons, I think. One, they knew that if a Persian force got into Greece, mainland Greece, down into the Peloponnese, their wonderful position of power 
they controlled two-fifths of the Peloponnese. They had lots and lots of Greeks who were in a servile position. They were the richest, most powerful land-based state and had been for 100-plus years. That game would be up. Secondly, and this is, um, you might think this is a bit romantic, but Leonidas, one of the two Spartan kings, took the lead in Sparta. Many Spartans were pretty suspicious about resisting. Could we resist the Persians? You know, they're going to wipe us out. No, no, Leonidas says, we're going to show the flag, we're going to form this alliance, and I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to go up to wherever it is that we first encounter the Persians when they invade by land. Why? Well, freedom. And now this is an irony, isn't it? Many Greeks in the Spartan state down in the Peloponnese, they are unfree. The Spartans have a slave-based economy and society and politics. But on the other hand, they're fiercely proud of not being dominated by anybody else. And there's a tradition, this is of course Herodotus, there is no other source, that as early as Cyrus's time, the Spartans had tried to make a show of saying, Cyrus, hey, look out, you know, don't think that you can just um, ignore us, we're going to resist you guys. And Cyrus famously says, who are? the Spartans, because that reflects the situation then. Again, I'm holding up my Gerard Butler card. Okay, in the film, <laughs> Leonidas has 300 men with him. Okay, now, how accurate or inaccurate or, or fanciful is that? How many did Leonidas take to face off against this enormous Persian sea that was crashing towards them. Right. Well, I'm now going to maybe tell you something you didn't know, but something that many people I find don't realize. Spartan kings, there were two of them, and there was a bodyguard which would accompany any king who went on battle, and it would number 300. It was selected from young Spartans. You become a full adult at the age of 20. Between 20 and 29, you're eligible to be picked to be one of the elite bodyguard, the commandos of the Spartan state. And this is within what is already a very militaristic Spartan culture. Well, people argue about militaristic. They're definitely militarized. The question is, do they, as it were, waste time doing military things that aren't functionally useful? Or were they geared to being a, a well-oiled military machine? I mean, there are two points of view on that. My colleagues uh, tend to disagree with me. I tend to take a rather old-fashioned view and think, yes, the whole point of it was to be on constant alert. At any rate, the 300 bodyguard was not what Leonidas took to Thymopylae. How do we know? Now, this is where it's absolutely crucial what your view of Herodotus is. And if you think he could have talked to the children of the 300 who died, then you start to think he had privileged access to information which no one else, I mean, elsewhere in Greece, not necessarily then, would have known. And he makes this point, Leonidas chose men, obviously great soldiers, but they had also to be married. And in Sparta, they were very old-fashioned. For a child to be legitimate, it had to be born to married parents, both of whom were Spartans. So he says, Leonidas picked up his 300 men, who had each of them a son living. 
So they've not only got married, but they've had enough time for their wives to produce a son, not just a daughter. Whereas, of course, famously King Cleomenes I had only a daughter, Gorgo, who married Leonidas. So it wasn't the case that all Spartans all had sons, <laughs> and this is um, just human genetics. Mm. Now, why then did he take men only who were already married and had a son? Well, who would, by virtue of that, be older? Yeah, but they must mustn't be too old, if you see what I mean, because they wouldn't do a good job. Right. They're going to die, most of them, heroically, because um, we'll go on to what other troops he took and what chance was there of them ever surviving. I'll come back to that. But the point is this, that the sons of those dead Spartans would be, uh, imagine being the son of Bob Charlton or something like that, <laughs> that you live, you got this terrific <laughs> reputation that your father was such a hero. And in Sparta, they worshipped people who they thought were once human beings, they die, and then you give them um, worship after their death as heroes. Spartans were big on heroizing Spartans. It just is a thing. That's something most people don't realize. They assume Leonidas took his regular bodyguard of 20-year-olds. He didn't. So the Persians are on the move. The Spartans have chosen their men with sons. The place that they are going to meet is Thermopylae, um, the hot gates. Is that how it translates? No, that's quite right. But it's not actually what happens. Again, this is where Herodotus is so um, valuable. That suppose you just had headlines. There was a battle at Thermopylae, Artemisian, Salamis, Michali. No, before Thermopylae, the first force that the United Greeks decided to send was much further north until, oh dear, it was pointed out to them. It shows you how ignorant Southerners were of the north, what's new. <laughs> uh, there was quite an easy way of past where they originally uh, were planning to meet the Persians, which is in the Vale of Tempe, further north. So, Having discovered that, uh, they then sent out a second force because they pulled back the whole first force and then sent out a second force, and that was the one led by Leonidas to Thermopylae, which is a one-kilometre-long pass running east-west, and it's in, in what's now well, it's called focus in ancient Greece. How narrow is it? And, you know, we've got this pic, well, I've got this picture in my mind of sort of jagged mountains uh, on one side, the sea on the other, and, and, and a very narrow pass in between. I mean, how, how narrow are we talking? That is absolutely correct, because one source says that it was just wide enough at its narrowest point for two wagons to pass each other. And there were three nodal points, the entrance on the west, the entrance or exit on the east and the, in the middle, and there was a fortification which already had been fortified by the locals It's an earlier period, the Phocians. And like many Greeks, they were always at the, the throats of their neighbors, the Thessalians. So um, what Leonidas found was a fortification which needed to be um, repaired and made more robust. I should add, though, that he didn't take only 300. I mean, he pitched up with this 300, but there were between six and 7,000 other Greek allies infantry with him when he starts um, fortifying and resisting in August 480 BC. 
Right. Okay. And we, we're, so we're, we're coming to the eve of battle, but I just want to paint one more picture of, of Thermopylae itself, which, which translates as the hot gates. And it gets that name because there's a lot of geothermal activity in that area. Is that, I mean, are, are we talking about steam shooting up from the ground? I mean, yes, yes, you are. And um, still today, you can bathe in the hot springs and um, people do regularly. So yes, hot thermos, uh, as in thermos, uh, means hot gates because it's um, a, a narrow entrance into some Southern Greece. Okay, so so the the Persians kicking up a huge heap of dust, one would assume, because there's such great numbers. And it's height of summer, height of summer, right, August. Okay. Yeah, yeah, forty degrees up to forty. Well, one one other thing we haven't dealt with, which is presumably very weighing very heavily on the Greeks, the Delphic Oracle has gone over to the enemy. Tell us about that. In effect, I mean, it's hard to say. They, you could take them as being pragmatic, and you could also take them as um, wanting the Persians not to do damage, that is to loot Delphi, because Delphi was a kind of giant war memorial and full of expensive gifts made of really precious uh, metals as well as stone. And if you think about what the Persians did in Didyma, I don't know if you covered that at the end of the revolt, the Ionian revolt, they destroyed the main sanctuary by Miletus. Miletus was the leader of the revolt against the Persians. Well, the Persians grabbed stuff, which they took off too. There's a famous statue, Persephone, it's thought to be, to Susa, which is one of the principal palaces in uh, Iran. So Persians loot. It's a standard thing going back to the Assyrians, one where you take it out on your enemy. You don't just defeat them, but you grab their stuff. So the Persians were coming. Um, most Greeks thought the Persians were bound to win. There was absolutely no point, really, in resisting them. So most did not fight against the Persians. A mm. few actually went over to the Persians, including the Thebans, but most sort of shivered on the sidelines, hoping that the battle would not roll over them or involve them. So the stage is now set. We are talking 480 BC. You've got the dusty, hazy Persians, <laughs> lots of them on one side. And then you've got uh, the 300 Spartans plus a few thousand uh, of other Greek soldiers who are waiting for them. Join us after the break when we find out what happens when these two forces come face to face. Welcome back. So just before, this is this exciting moment, which again, uh, it, the films and Hollywood have made much of, but this 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 face-to-face -face of an enormous army with, if you'd watched the film, 12-foot Xerxes, who's <laughs> been elongated beyond any reason, and his enormous crack troops. And then you've got the plucky Spartans, as the film puts it. Uh, and, you know, as Paul, our very special guest today, has pointed out, thousands of others, add-ons, not all Greeks, some Greeks. Um, is there any attempt, Paul, to try and, and have a peaceful resolution? Is there any embassy that's sent out first, or do they just go at it? Xerxes arrives with his, I think, probably eighty to 100,000 troops at the west end of the Paths of Thermopylae. And he waits. And I'm sure the reason he waits, this is all Herodotus, by the way, we've one just got to say, I'm not making this up as it were. Maybe Herodotus <laughs> was, but I'm not. He waits for two or three days. Why? Because he assumes when the Greeks under Leonidas see 
what they're up against, they will realize that at best they'll be able to hold out for a day or so. So why not go now, you know, give up? And um, there's allegedly a message. Now, this is much later. This is not in Herodotus. We do have later sources. And there will have been all tradition that Herodotus chose not to um, write down. At any rate, story goes that Xerxes, through a messenger, uh, sends a message saying, lay down your arms, in effect, surrender. And of course, famously, Spartans typically don't surrender. And this is where Leonidas resorts to a classic Spartan laconism. Laconic means Spartan in Greek. And um, he just says, um, come and get them, come and get the weapons, using two Greek words, molon labe, which has to be cashed out in English to at least come and get them or come get them. It's like the football thing, come on over here if you think you're hard enough, come on <laughs> over here if you think you're hard enough, which is, you know. And this is really what they say. It's fantastic. That's what Herodotus at least says they say. Well, Herodotus doesn't have this. This is actually in Plutarch, a much later source, but um, he does have, he preserves um, a number of sayings of Spartans at the time. And Plutarch, who was particularly interested in these witty sayings, has lots and lots of witty sayings that Spartans make. And um, I'll come on to one of um, Leonidas's, which is in um, Herodotus. So. Okay, so the suing for peace is just an utter failure. They're going to fight. They are just going to fight. Take us through day one of the battle, which proves to be actually very good for Leonidas in many ways. Right. So now imagine the pass, which at its narrowest is just wide enough for two chariots to pass. So in other words, kettling, blocking up the pass in itself is not difficult. You put at the front your bravest troops. I'm talking about the Greek side, and that means the Spartans, and that means um, one or two other Greek, um, mainly from the local area, who are resisting. They're not the only people resisting. The story will emerge soon of a whole detachment that Leonidas has sent away, 1,000 men, to guard another bit behind the pass. At any rate, Xerxes, quite rightly, doesn't risk his absolutely crack troops initially. So rather than the Persians, who are the southern Iranians, he sends in Medians, who are the north Iranians. They're, as it were, the second best. From the Caspian highlands, from the Elburts. Yeah, all of those. And they suffer terrific losses. And of course, it's not possible to be accurate about losses, but it's been estimated that perhaps as many as 10%. If we start from 200,000, it's been guesstimated that in the first two days, perhaps as many as 10% of those 200,000 died. So that's very severe casualties. And when you see pictures at Persepolis or at Susa of these wonderful elite Persian forces, they've all got bows and arrows, these huge quivers full of arrows. So can we imagine a, a kind of flights of arrows coming down on the, on the Spartans first before hand-to-hand -hand combat? We can. And well, the idea is not so much first, but at the same time. And so the arrows are a terrific distraction. And this is one of the sayings that Herodotus does preserve of a Spartan. He's told, do you know, the Persians, they have so many archers that when they fire all at once, it blots out the sun. And remember, this is uh, August in northern Greece. We're talking high 30s, probably Celsius. And so Deinaches, he, he actually gets a name check, uh, says... 
great, we'll fight the battle in the shade. And now that's very Spartan, because it means you make light of an immensely horrendous situation. You joke about it, and therefore you reduce it to manageable proportions. Give us an idea of the, the defense. So they're shoulder to shoulder, overlapping shields. Do they have shield walls in, the, in Sparta, round shields, so you can't lock them? They are and they aren't. In other words, they are always uh, together, but they're not always static. And Herodotus it is, again, who reports a tactic which only an exceptionally well-drilled force could execute. And it's this. So you get the, first of all, the arrows softening up the Spartans, etc. Then you get the second best troops. Then you get other troops. Well, they're repulsed. So in other words, there's a space they didn't do at all well. Many, Too many of them died. And so um, the other guys pause. Well, in the pause, the Spartans and others, under Leonidas's direction, retreat, apparently, such that the Persian side think, oh, so we didn't do so badly, and they advance. Whereupon, just before they're about to close with the Spartans, apparently in retreat, and the Spartans are at the front of the Greek forces, they wheel around and whack into the uh, Persians who are out in disorder chasing them and do uh, more damage. So this is all contributing to this figure of roughly 10% casualties that I was suggesting. That's so high when we're with, with, with such, such enormous numbers involved. Particularly also if it's, if it's this very narrow spot. It isn't like it's a, a long line of troops lined out. They're just in this tiny block in the path. Well, either, either blocking or falling off the side. I mean, there's a sea on one side. Surely they're just toppling over, just bodies and bodies falling over the cliffs, aren't they? No, it's, the, the, there probably is some of that, though that's not actually mentioned. But um, when I say it narrows at one point, um, that is the narrowest point. That's where you obviously fortify. But on either side of that, it's wider. So you can have fighting on either side of where the Spartans and their uh, allies are encamped. Okay, so the, the de end of day one, Leonidas has proved himself to be actually a, a very smart tactician. You know, this fake out has been really very effective against the Persians. Day two, then, how do they change their thinking, the Persians? Because now they've, they've realized they've been out -thunk by these pesky Spartans who, um, you know, tricked them. Well, the, the, and what shall we say, the um, Greeks have the view that so unwilling are many on the Persian side to fight for uh, an emperor who is not one of theirs. So in other words, they're not Iranians, most of them. And apart from the uh, Medes and the Persians, they, the others are not that they needed to be whipped into battle. Now, this could be Greek uh, propaganda. All Persian subjects are slaves. Slaves need to be whipped. Therefore, they needed to be whipped to even fight. Mm, possibly, possibly not. But as far as we are recorded, um, day two is pretty much the same as day one with one difference on the Greek side. And this is very, very controversial because it's a much later source. He's Diodorus, Sicilian Greek, writing in the first century BC, a generic history of all the Greek world in the fifth century BC. He records that the Greeks tried to assassinate Xerxes at the end of day two. In other words, sent in a task force to the Persian camp undercover to try to assassinate Xerxes in his tent failed, and therefore the battle went on. Most of us think that that's not um, going to be actually something that's very 
um, plausible. You can't just stroll in, can you? Everyone, people would notice. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's daring do. It makes it seem as if the Greeks weren't purely passive. But do you remember I mentioned that um, Leonidas had sent away a detachment, 1,000, right away on while they're waiting around and the battle hasn't commenced. He sends 1,000 local people, they're called Phokians, to occupy a pass behind the battle, behind the um, pass. So he knows, Leonidas, about this route around the back. And it's on day two, this is in Herodotus, that a local Greek, not a Phokian, <laughs> not one of the resisting forces, a man called Ephialtes, allegedly gets to somehow to the Persian camp with a message, um, O king, I know a way round the back of the uh, pass so that you can kettle the Greeks, the traitor. both at the West End, and then the troops come round. And what force does Xerxes choose? The 10,000 immortals, mm. the crack mm. infantry. This is where, as it were, their whole purpose is revealed. They've been brought over, but until there's a pitched battle, they've got no particular function. But as a crack force used to traveling over mountains in, in the dark, etc., etc., they go round overnight and they just simply walk past that Phokian uh, detachment who somehow <laughs> were asleep. I mean, I think probably literally asleep. And so they get past no problem at all and they're down and they kettle up the Greeks from the east end. And do the, the immortals engage on day two? And they've come around the back, they've, they've found their way to the rear of the, uh, of the Spartan force. What happens? Do they, do they engage or do they just sort of stand there with their spears and arrows and wait? No, they are simply moving up. But what's Leonidas's response? Because there are um, messengers who tell him that the pass has been passed. So in other words, that the, it's called the Anapaya Pass. The immortals have got passed, but there are locals who are in a position, as in Crete, when Crete was occupied in the Second World War, you have locals who know the mountains and they are quick runners. They're used to running. I have in this very room, Patrick Lee Fermor's own copy of the Cretan runner uh, that he gave me. Oh, congratulations, yes. And have you possibly been to Anoya, the mountain where George Sikundakis is from, the village, yeah. No, um, so they are encumbered by their equipment. Relatively speaking, Persian forces in general, infantry, are lighter armed. They have less heavy shields, their uh, spears are shorter and weaker, etc., etc. But the immortals were as heavy armed as any other force on the Persian side. Now, I'm, I mentioned that Leonidas gets some advance warning that the pass has been turned uh, overnight. So he offers the um, other Greeks, non-Spartans, the other ones um, on his side, you can flee, you can fight another day if you wish. And it's possible that actually most of the others simply had already fled. And this is putting a nice gloss on it that Leonidas gave them the option. They weren't disobedient, they weren't cowardly. But the fact of the matter is, by the time the Persian immortals, etc., have the remnant of the Greek force in the middle of the pass, where the mound is, that the final stand is uh, stood on day three, there are only the remnant of the 300 plus Leonidas. There are 
um, something like 700 men from a town near Thebes in Boeotia. It's called Thespia. And there are 400 Thebans, and they're the most controversial of the whole lot. Right. So we've got we've got some leftover uh, Greeks who haven't run away. And the reason, actually, it's really understandable that they might run away is this is a suicide mission now. To hold or to hold your position now. They're surrounded on both sides. You're going to die, aren't you? I mean, they must have known that. They must have known they were going to die. Completely right. Now, my colleagues and I disagree over whether it was from the beginning a suicide mission. In other words, was the final day scenario what Leonidas had in mind? I think it was. And um, Willie mentioned the Delphic Oracle. A Delphic Oracle, an oracle from Delphi was issued around this time that if and only if a Spartan king died at Thermopylae or wherever, only then would Sparta be saved. Uh. And so if Leonidas, I think he conjured that oracle personally. I think he probably got that so that he would have to go and die. And he therefore selected 300 who had sons, therefore the family lines wouldn't die out, and so on. To me, it all fits, but not all my colleagues are willing to uh, see things the way I see things. So they're surrounded on both sides. Leonidas has offered anyone who wants to flee the option to go. The remains of the 300 are there. What happens on day three? So the Persian side is still so mindful of what happened on days one and two that they are now unwilling to engage hand-to-hand. It's a remarkable fact. They therefore soften up the remainder who retreat to a hill. Soften up, in in other words, spike them with arrows. They fire immense numbers of arrows such that many are uh, seriously wounded before they can be reached to be grappled with. The Spartans and co, Herodotus says, they fought with their teeth and with their nails in their hands because their swords would break uh, and that's all they had. They had a, a, a sword or a, a spear. So their spear's gone, their sword had gone, and they still fought, uh, allegedly, um, oh. with, with their teeth and with their hands. We say mm-hmm. tooth and nail. And um, it was quite heroic, with one exception. Again, this is problematic. The Thebans, who were still there, surrendered. So rather than joining the Thespians who died to a man and the Spartans who on the hill died to a man, these 400 Thebans said, please, please, we never wanted to fight you. Our city's on your side. Please be, be kind to us. But the Persians allegedly branded them. So took them as prisoners, made them slaves and branded them. So they didn't think that the Thebans... Served them right. Serves them right after this. It's a, it's a, it's complicated. Were they traitors? Were they not traitors? Or they just people who wanted to live? Yeah, just people who wanted to. I mean, goodness me! I mean, in that position. So that was that was it. After three days, it's all over. So what was their legacy, Paul? Well, it's regularly stated as a fact that all 300 and Leonidas, of course there were 301 Spartans at Thermopylae, not 300, had died. They didn't. And Herodotus, the truth teller, tells us two of them had not actually been able to fight. One, because he had been sent away before the fighting began on a diplomatic mission nearby. Please send us more troops. And he hadn't got back in time. And one, because he was blind. 
He had uh, such a bad eye infection, he couldn't actually see and chose, now this was a bit of a mistake in retrospect, not to go into the battle itself. I mean, you might think, well, look, all the others are going to die anyway, so you're going to die blind. What's the difference? But at any rate, for whatever reason, he held back and made, or rather had to make, um, up amends. Back in Sparta, he was treated appallingly. He was regarded as a coward, as a traitor. You wouldn't um, have a meal with a guy like that, would you? Well, the next year, the big battle, the final battle on land at Plataea, this guy somehow wangles himself into the front line and in effect commits suicide by charging into the enemy when he should have remained in file with his comrades and moved at a leisurely pace. So there's a lot of drama around the battle, not just in the battle. Well, honestly, I didn't. This this makes you actually a, a much better storyteller than Hollywood because it is such <laughs> a dramatic tale to tell. You've told it so very well. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking us through um, this, this battle at the pass, as 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 you know, the next film will be called. I'm sure, but it's been a real privilege and pleasure to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anita. Thank you, Willie. Really.